Okay, we're finally finishing this study. Somebody said, how many weeks has this been? Been 17 weeks on discipleship. And that was a net reading for us this morning. This last part of this longest teaching of Jesus is given to us in one block in the New Testament. And it sort of ends maybe where you think, oh, it should begin here. And that's because, you know, we've been learning what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does that look like? in real life terms, because I live in real life. I don't live back there in the New Testament time. I live today. And how am I going to do this? What does this look like? So that's what we've been talking about through the summer. And we end with, I think, one of the most important teachings that we'll see. And um, so I think the way to begin is to think about it like this. Um, What is love to you? Is it romance? Is it attraction? Is it a covenant? Is it a commitment? What does it look like when you think of this stuff? And by the way, we live in this culture. We love these stories. We flock to movies where it's a love story, right? We're in the middle of those dramas. We hear them day in and day out. But I want us to think about, well, what is that stuff? And how does that impact us in our lives as we follow Christ? Sandy and I, on our summer vacation, I have to tell you about something we did on our summer vacation. A lot of times when we drive and do a road trip, we had a really long one, she will read a book aloud to me. I love to hear the sound of her voice, or sometimes we'll just listen to the, to the recording of it. Our book for this fall, uh, I'm sorry, this summer was this one, How to Stay Married, The Most Insane Love Story Ever Told. Okay, it is funny, it is irreverent, it is irreverent, it is irreverent, okay? It's rough in places, in many places. Written by this guy, his name is Harrison Scott Key, and it tells the story of one day how he came, you know, into into the house, and his wife sat down with him and told him she had been having a long-term affair with their next-door neighbor, who you know, they had lived next to for many years, had been going on for many years, and told him that their marriage was over. He was absolutely clueless. He had no idea what had been going on under his own roof right there between his, between his wife and their neighbor. And he began to ask, what do I do? Where do I go? And by the way, he, he and his wife were churchgoers, so he went to their church in downtown Savannah, Georgia, and to the pastor, and the pastor said, oh, we need to get elders together, and we're going to practice this, we're going to excommunicate her. And he realized, wow, if, if you did that, this would blow up my kids. It would devastate everybody. I don't think that is the way. But he had no idea. He thought it was actually over, was it? What would he do from here? And it wasn't until a friend that he talked to said something that he hadn't heard from anybody that it changed his way he thought about it. His friend said this, you are going to fight for her, aren't you? You're going to fight for your, for your wife, are you not? And he'd never heard anything like that. And he, he had no idea what it actually meant. But he realized that he was being challenged to test the limits of what love could do, what love actually is, and perhaps see the power of it and believe that restoration could come. This is what he said. He said, love is never a bad call. It might seem impossible. It might even seem silly when every atom in your body screams for blood. But how else, other than with love, can a broken thing be made whole again? Don't you like that? 
How, how, what other way is it possible than with love than to, for a broken thing to be made whole again? Here's Harrison and Lauren. They're still together through the power of stubborn love. Now, by the way, this isn't a message on marriage. And I'm not saying that every uh, relationship can be healed with our human love. But I want to look at you at, with you at the power of God's love, how durable and powerful it is, and how it can sustain and empower us. And as I mentioned, we've been in this study of discipleship, and we're in this place that is the most intimate place you'll find anywhere in the Bible, in which the Father, God, is communing with the Son, and you hear this communication. You've been let in on one of the most intimate conversations you could possibly imagine. And here is this communing love between the Father and the Son. And what I want to ask is, okay, what do we learn from this? How, how does this help us walk as disciples of Jesus? How does that happen? And what is this, you know, unbreakable love that we learn about when we see the love between the Father and the Son? Would you pray together with me? Father, we really are. We're a bunch of romantics. Even if we won't admit it, Lord, we love to see the turn in a story in which love, unexpected, undeserved, maybe not even reasonable, changes the story. There is a pivot that we can't count on because it's something from out of this world. And so I pray that you'll not just teach us about it, would you help us to understand it so we might be able to live in it? And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name, amen. 600 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, the prophet Jeremiah spoke this to God's people. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with unfailing kindness. So here's this prophet. He's saying, I need to remind you guys, God said a long time ago, and he's continued to say, I have loved you, you're my people, with an everlasting love. And you'd say, well, why is he doing this? Why is God reminding his people? Why does he constantly do this? And I think it's because we, we don't get it or we forget it. We think that if we're failing or struggling, that somehow God doesn't love us in that place. That he only loves us when we're up, when we're doing well, when we're put together, and when we're faithful. And I think we believe this because this is how we experience human love. I mean, we, we smile at people who smile at us. We know about that, right? We love our kids when they succeed but frown and show disappointment when they fail. We look over their report cards, and we don't even see the A's. We see everything else but that, right? And we zone in on that. And this, they think, is the measure, this is the signal they get of our love. We, we will love them if they do better, if they get it together. And so God is reminding us of this because this is a voice completely different than the voice that we hear in our world. Now, here's what I mean. I was reading a study. Some Israeli researchers for 10 years did one of these long-term studies where they tracked with parents. And they only looked for two kinds of parents. They looked at those parents who lived, loved their kids 
based on how well their kids were doing, a conditional kind of love. If they were well-behaved or self-controlled, if they were impressive at school or in sports, then they got affection, they got love from their parents. And then they looked at those parents who they couldn't see any connection between how the kid was doing and how much the parents loved them. That love was always there. And here is what they discovered, really interesting. Indeed, those, those children who had parents who their love varied on their performance, these kids, they got a little bit better grades. And it's true, they did a little bit better in sports. But when those children became adults, they studied them, this is what they said, and I'll use their terminology. They saw the development of a fragile, contingent, and unstable sense of self. So at the cost of a little bit better grades and a little bit better activity on the soccer field, these kids were living insecure and fragile in their identities. And by the way, they then could see that there's this increase in the conditional love kind of parenting. And the reason is because it's as if we put our kids in competition with all the other kids. And we want our kids to win. We, we say it, right? Hey, my kid made the honor roll. What about your kid, right? And yes, you can get a little performance, better performance from your child. But what's the cost going to be? And what are you teaching them about the way relationships work? I like the way John Steinbeck explained this in his book, Out of East of Eden. You know, East of Eden is where Adam and Eve had to go after the fall. This is how he explained where we are as human beings. He said, the greatest terror a child can have is that he is not loved. And rejection is the hell he fears. I think everyone in the world, to a large or small extent, has felt this kind of rejection. And with rejection comes anger. And with anger, some kind of crime and revenge for the rejection. And with the crime, guilt. And there is the story of mankind. He said, look, if you dial down into our story, it will trace back to this lack of love. And this is where we live as human beings. With these fragile selves, we have built identities with unstable building materials. And so it's why we're so desperate for approval. And so why we're so insecure. It's, it's overwhelming to think of where we live every day. And it's why we long so much for love. You see, God built us to live in an environment of love and support. And that's what I want to look at with you today. The engine, or what I would say, empowers our discipleship, makes it possible for us to live as disciples of Jesus. What it is, what it creates, and finally, how we can live it. Now, as I mentioned, we've been invited into this incredibly intimate conversation in which the son says, all that you have, Father, I have. And all that I have, I've shared with you. And the glory that I have is for you. And, and you have glorified me and what you've done. And this beautiful picture of the kind of union, it, it's hard for us to even understand this kind of union. But we, we listen to the prayer and we hear what's going on and we realize that this is, Jesus wants us to hear because he wants us to know what we have in him. And you'll notice how this section of the prayer begins. Jesus is now extending this prayer to pray more into the distance. This is what he says. My prayer is not for them alone, that is the disciples. I also pray for those who will believe in me 
through their message. Now, that's you. And that's people still yet to be born who are going to have faith in Jesus and follow him. And by the way, when the disciples hear this, they couldn't begin to imagine. And the reason is because at this time, this is a fledgling movement. Very people, few people have stuck with Jesus until the end. And soon even they're going to flee and go into hiding to protect their own skin. But you see, God has a plan. And what Jesus does at the cross is going to launch a movement that is going to reach across time to every nation and every people, every culture, every tribe. You see, Jesus is praying for you, and he's praying for me. And as I said, all those who will come to faith. And here, as we, we would lean in and say, okay, how's he praying for me? What does he want? This is what he prays for. He prays for how it will all be possible. Because the disciples are nobody, really. They have no influence. They have no position. They're not wealthy. They're weak men, and they're full of fear. And soon we're going to hear, wow, this community comes to be, and, and it's all growing. How is that going to happen? And I think you can find it at the center of this prayer. Listen to what Jesus says. I and them, talking about the disciples, and you and me, here's that relationship, so that they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Did you get that part? What? The, the Father has loved them? Jesus' followers the way he loves the Son, Jesus? Yes, because of Jesus, the Father loves you with the same love that he shares with the Son. And by the way, if we miss this, listen further on in the prayer. That the love you have for me may be in them. You see, the surprise of following Jesus and being his disciples is it doesn't come from our performance. He doesn't say, hey, I've done something you owe me. Or this is the least you can do for me. He, he doesn't withhold his love at all. He doesn't tell us we have to get our lives together first. Instead, Jesus knows we cannot live without this love that comes from the Father. Do you know, by the way, you do know how this is how Jesus did it, right? I mean, we look at him and, and we say, okay, he's the son of God. He, he can live with the kind of weaknesses we struggle with so much. He's, no, he, he was a human being just as you are. He, he took on flesh and lived a human life. But you know, from the beginning of his ministry, listen to what the father says to him. This is at his baptism. He says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. So here he is, the father, from the beginning, just speaking love into his life. I love him. He is my son. I'm pleased with him. And if we miss this, go to the transfiguration, a lot deeper in the gospel, right? And here at the transfiguration, there's Jesus and the father. He speaks. This is what he says. This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Now, you think Jesus has forgotten what his father said at his baptism? No, but this is what love does. It situates us in a completely different life in such a way that the father is like, here's my son. I love him. I'm pleased with him. I am for him. And this is what this engine is in our discipleship. It's the power, the force, the drive behind our new life in Christ is the love of God. It's the pleasure that God already has in you because you're in Christ. 
I don't know, years ago, I think it was 2009, the book came out by um, Brennan Manning entitled The Furious Longing of God. Really awesome book, right? And in it, he recounts the story of a kid who came home on college break. I don't know, I don't, I'm not sure what years it was. The, the kid's name was Larry Mullaney, and, and Larry was super overweight. I mean, his doctor told him he was obese. He was in danger. And he was also super depressed. And he spent the whole holiday with his family. And, you know, at the end of his holiday, he had to go to the airport. And his dad said, look, if you ride the bus with me to work, there's another bus that will actually take you to the airport that I'll wait. I'll make sure you get on that bus. So as he's riding on the bus to where his dad works, some of the other guys that work with his dad see him and, and notice that this is you know, Larry and his dad who were there. And when they got off the bus, he could hear these other men who were talking about him. One of them said, look at that fat pig. If that kid were my kid, that pig, I'd hide him in the basement. I'd be so embarrassed. Another said, well, I, I wouldn't even do that with that slob like that if he were my kid. He'd be out the door so fast. And he could hear these men who his dad worked with talking about him really brutalizing him. And when his father heard that, he, he just ran over like the father of the prodigal and he, he, he wrapped him in his arms and he, and he kissed him. And he looked at him, he said, he said, Larry, if your mother and I lived to be 200 years old, that wouldn't be long enough to thank God for the gift, for, for the gift he gave to us in you. I, I'm so proud that you were my son. And all those men could hear this affirmation. Well, let me tell you, at that time, that kid, Larry, he hated himself. He literally hated himself. There's a reason he was depressed. But something happened that day in the words of his father that sent his life on a completely different trajectory. He, he learned to discover that God loved him and loved him even more. And as a result, he gained confidence in the love of God. He ended up spending his whole life doing missions work in Latin America. But his discovery of the love of God happened that day when his father embraced him and kissed him. However he felt about himself in front of those men who had said those horrible things. As we read this, we think this, this is what's happening. Do you know that the father speaks these words over you? He's not waiting to do that. He already speaks these words over you. If you are in Christ because of this relationship between the Father and the Son, you are in, included in this overwhelming love, this relationship you're drawn into. And by the way, all everything else is downstream from getting that. Okay, creates all kinds of things. Like if you look at the prayer, if you listen to it, you begin to see how much flows from this love. It all, all starts there. For example, we hear Jesus repeat in his prayer about the oneness we now have. For example, that all of them may be one, right? That they may be one as we are one. Here's that relationship. That they may be brought to complete unity, right? This bond that we have through Jesus to the Father also brings us together. So by the way, let me just make this super clear. We're not all here because we're a part of the same political party or we have the same socioeconomic background. A lot of us don't. We come from different backgrounds. And by the way, I noticed this morning in the early service, we had some Seminoles and some Gators and some Hurricanes and we didn't even have a fight break out. 
And Jane pointed out to me that I happen to be wearing UM Orange. And you'll see that she's wearing her Aggie colors this morning. And that, see, no person, we, the, the reason we are here is because the love of the Father has come into that other person's life, not just yours. Christ dwells in that person through his spirit. And by faith, you live in that. And so we retain our nationality. We don't want to change that. Or your age and education, your ethnic background, that doesn't matter. We are one in Christ. And so that person next to you is also loved by God and is united to you through the love of God. And I thought of that this past week. I had to do this to you guys. I hope you'll forgive me, okay, in advance. I had to show you a picture of me with my newest granddaughter. There she is. Her name is Mabel. She weighed seven pounds, four ounces at this time. And you know what I started thinking about her? As soon as she was born, she didn't even know it. She has aunts and uncles, right? She has cousins, she has grandparents. She has a whole group of people who already love her, and she doesn't even know them yet. And the reality of the body of Christ is exactly that. You come into the body of Christ, it's like, wow, I didn't know these people. Well, I'm not sure I want to know. No, no, I do. I want to see God at work in the lives of people and how we've been drawn together. There's a community of people that was loving her even before she was born. And because the Father is one with the Son and you are found in Christ, you have a new family. Those are the other people who are here. People who love you, again, who also don't even know you. That's how we're a people. We are literally gathered up in this love between the Father and the Son. And it is this unity that Jesus says becomes our greatest apologetic. What that word means is it's the most powerful statement or sign that God is in our midst. Right? That this comes from outside our world because this, this can't be found here. Or as Jesus prayed, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now this is so tough. We live in a culture like filled with individualism and it's so fragmented. We feel so alienated from each other. But there is a unity that leads people seeing the truth about Jesus. That he came from the Father and that the gospel is true. I remember... Um, Another one of the books Sandy and I read is, is about, a young, it's about a woman. She's older now, but when she was younger, she hated the church. She rejected God. She didn't want anything to do with church people, she would call them. And then she found herself in a gathering of, the, of a church family simply because of somebody she knew. She didn't want to be in this group, but she found herself in their midst. And she began watching them, just observing the way they lived. This is what she said. She said, how is it that I believe these people stand for everything I hate? And yet when I am with them and watching, I feel this is the way life was meant to be lived. I see it in their relationships, in their harmony, in the children with their parents, in the young people with the elderly. How is it they seem to possess the very things I lack? Why do I ache inside? for what they have. You see, this is the power of the love of the Father seen in people who walk together in community. They're loving each other because they've been loved. And by the way, she's being drawn into this community. She came to faith in Christ as a result. By the way, this is also the primary way that the church grew in the beginning. It wasn't because we had better speakers or we had great organizations. There was none of that. They saw love that was contagious, and they wanted it because our hearts 
hunger for it. It was in plain sight. This hunger for love and community was met there. By the way, let me tell you, Harrison and his wife Lauren left that church that they were in, and they began attending a church that was filled with other broken and hurting people who were like them. And then while they were there, they were loved in the direction toward healing. By the way, we have a, a marriage conference coming up, weekend to remember if you need to be encouraged, get to one of those places where you can be surrounded by other people who will love you. Because people are hungry for a place they will be loved and welcome, a place of grace. By the way, we all know self-hatred and rejection. We know this stuff. What if here Jesus could be found in the love of Jesus? Now, I know all this sounds like a pipe dream, right? We know churches, we've heard of churches fighting just like everybody else. And, and by the way, that does make us wonder, is, is any of this true? I remember visiting Jerusalem. If you go there, one of the places you'll probably end up is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. If, you have, if you've been there, maybe you've been to that church. You'll see a picture of it. I think we have here sort of light. Can we, can we get that picture? Maybe? Yeah, there we go. And uh, the reason it's important is because the church has believed that the place where Jesus was crucified is a place that's now inside that building. They built a building around it. Now, here's the thing, though. That church is shared by six Christian denominations. And there have been fights. And by the way, they have lines like, you're in my zone, that's your zone, right? They have had fights because a chair wandered from one zone, I mean, fist fights, because a chair wandered from that zone into our zone. And the amazing thing, the story of it is right outside, because outside, I don't know if you can see, that's a ladder. That ladder has been in place since at least 1728. And let me tell you why. They went through a restoration project that all of them had to agree upon, and in the end, they couldn't agree on taking the ladder down. <laughs> it's still there against the wall. And so this sounds like, this is a picture of the church. How is this going to work? How will this be possible if the church is like that? And that's what I want to ask. How can we live in it? Here, let me tell you, you already have this love. Not how you can get it, you already have it. The Father loves you the way he loves Jesus. Do you realize this prayer is about you? You see, I don't think so, and here's why. I think we'd have more joy if we did. <laughs> we'd be able to weather criticism, right, and, and conflict better if we did, but, but we don't grasp it. And that's why the Apostle Paul says this, and you hear me use this as the benediction. I pray that you being rooted, you're already rooted and established in this love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, long, high, and deep is the love of Christ. He says, you guys don't get it. You've been loved. You already have it. And I just pray that you, you grasp this. You see, this is the engine empowering all of our life in God's not because you develop a better discipline. You can't, we can't make ourselves into better people. And why? Why do we struggle with it? Well, for some of us, it could be our circumstances. It causes us to doubt God. How many of us are, are sort of here? We say, if God really loved me, then he wouldn't be allowing this to happen right now in my life. Right? Maybe you're there. What can overcome this? This is what I think it is. I, I think it's only seeing Jesus, seeing the love of God outpoured for us. And I think it's because we don't see Jesus 
You see, likely that night as Jesus betrayed, the disciples, they couldn't understand this prayer. It's way over their heads at this time. But they would know what his love was because the next day Jesus went to the cross. He would die for them, right? And by the way, Harrison fought for his wife, Lauren. That's why they're still riding bikes together today. But let me tell you, it's nothing in comparison to the way Jesus fought for you. He laid it all down so that you would have his love. You'd be able to have this relationship with the Father. Then the disciples get it. They, they begin to understand how they've been loved. And that's why this loving community was born. They, they realized what it meant to belong to Jesus. And that's how they were empowered to live a new life. I'm thankful for a teacher who reminded me this from an incident from a book I read years ago called The Hiding Place by a woman named Corey Ten Boom. You'll see Corey's family. She's the only woman standing in this picture. It was Holland as Nazism was taking over Europe. And she and her family, because they were Christ followers, they decided they would make a, a hiding place in their house in which they could hide Jewish people to protect them because the Jews were being rounded up from all across Europe. The problem is it was discovered. And everybody in her family, including herself, they were all sent to concentration camps. She and her sister Betsy ended up in the same camp called Ravensbrook. And she describes that experience. And Betsy did not live that through that time in the camp, though Corey did. She said one of the worst things that happened every week was every Friday they had what was called, quote-unquote, a medical inspection, in which literally every single woman had to take off every stitch of clothing. And they would be paraded in front of officers and then to a medical person who would look them over. And by the way, they couldn't even cross their arms in the cold of winter they had to always keep their arms at their side. And here's what Corey says about her experience. How could there be any pleasure in the sight of these stick-thin legs and hunger-bloated stomachs I could not imagine? Surely there is no more wretched sight than that human body unloved and uncared for. But it was one of these mornings, while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page in the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. I leaned toward Betsy ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood out sharp and thin beneath her mottled, blue mottled skin. Betsy, they took his clothes too. And ahead, I heard a little gasp, oh, Corey, and I never thanked him. I think there's a time when you begin to realize what love is really about and you have a view of Jesus and you're like, oh my goodness, how has God loved me? One day we get it. We understand what Jesus did. We can't know why hard things and pain come into our lives. I can't tell you that. But I can tell you this. We do know that it is not because God doesn't love you. Because he does. We may struggle to believe God loves us because how we're doing in our lives, right? Maybe we feel like we're failing or struggling. It's like, I don't even love myself. How could God love me? And we think that God is like us. Dane Ortland, who, read, who wrote the book we read a couple of years ago as a church, Gentle and Lowly, explained it like this. He isn't like you. 
Even the most intense of human love is but the faintest echo of heaven's cascading abundance. His heartfelt thoughts for you outstrip what you can conceive. He intends to restore you into the radiant resplendence for which you were created. And that is dependent not on you keeping yourself clean, but on you taking your mess to him. He doesn't limit himself to working with the unspoiled parts of us that remain after a lifetime of sinning. His power runs so deep that he's able to redeem the very worst parts of the most of our past into the most radiant parts of our future. But we need to take those dark miseries to him. Within the next 24 hours, the disciples are going to deny Jesus. Uh, they will run from him. They won't stand with him like friends. But Jesus loves them still. And wherever you are, you need to know that that's how Jesus sees you. This is what Jesus is praying for and what you now possess because Jesus came for you. I like the way John Ortberg said it. He put it like this. Nothing you could ever do could make God love you more than he does right now. Not greater achievement, not greater beauty, not wider recognition, not even greater levels of spirituality and obedience. Nothing you have ever done could make God love you any less. Not any sin, any failure, not any guilt, not any regret. And the reason is because you're in Christ. And the love that the Father has for the Son goes on for all eternity. It's not diminished by anything that happens in us or to us. And this is the source of our power to live as disciples. It's because every day we remember, wow, my Father loves me. I'm going to live in that today. That's what I'm going to do. And I think that's what we do. Just like the, the Father repeated to the Son, you learn to preach the gospel to yourself as you're going through the day. I'm loved by God. I'm a child of God. I, that should never happen, but I know Jesus died for me. And because of that, I know that I'm loved with an everlasting love. And then, by the way, that trickles down to our kids and into our community as we come to ourselves understand this love that can transform. By the way, this love transforms every other love in our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, we talk about all this stuff like it's an achievement of ours when Jesus finished it all. What you want us to do is just rest in him. Do so by faith every day, knowing and we're believing that we're yours because Jesus came and died and rose again. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us here that we'd have the confidence of that as we go out into the city. And, Lord, at the same time, it's super humbling to know that Jesus did this for us. To know a love that is durable and not based on how I'm doing today. So we thank you, Lord. Help us to rest in this love. Help us to remember. Help us to grow in our understanding of it. For we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.